tell us more about Jesus and what he came to do and what the gospel is all about and what grace really is and the nature of God's kingdom. He's using these trials, essentially, and these questions and these defenses that the Christians are making, but these sermons that they're kind of bringing into these trials, the arrests, the time in prison that they've already been spending at the hands of these offended, threatened Jewish leaders. He's using that to talk about the gospel and talk about theology. And so one of the things I love about this, this theme, is that instead of the Bible saying to us, here's Christianity to you in a list of Proverbs that give you helpful spiritual advice, instead of that, the Bible's saying, here's Christianity to you in a clash between a Christian full of grace and a religious council full of pride. Here's Christianity to you in that narrative and in that story. And really, when we say that, it's not that far from saying Christianity is wrapped up in a person, Jesus, and the clash that he had with evil for us, rather than, again, a list of do's and don'ts or commandments. Christianity is all about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel I've already mentioned this morning. We'll talk about it today. Christianity is all about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ripple effects or shock waves that it sends out from the epicenter of that one gospel. As if the story is being relived out, retold over and over again for emphasis, dramatic effect, and our joy in God's fame. And so we'll see that again yet today. Today's kind of a part one of two in regards to Stephen, this man Stephen, who actually met last week if you were here. Uh, Spence preached on the first part of chapter six, and he's mentioned along with other leaders in the church. And so uh, described a little bit as well, but today we're really going to look at him under a microscope and then especially next week um, as, as well. If you've read about him before, you kind of know where we're going. But today is more the ac- accusation of Stephen section. And next week is Stephen's speech, which is super long. And someone's going to read it all before I get up here. And I'm going to do, do the mountaintop version of chapter 7. Not every verse or we'd uh, be here till dinner that day. So, but it'll be super fun. All right, so let's read, though, uh, Acts 6, 8 to 15 for today. Read it and fold it again. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, speaking of the temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of of an angel. All right, so a couple words on Stephen to begin. Stephen uh, was a Jewish Christian. Again, he came up by name last week, but he was a Jewish Christian, one of the first Christians, and one of the first deacons of the Jerusalem church, as again, we talked about a little bit about last week. So he's gifted, and all this is from last week's passage, and then a lot of this is from today's passage. So we don't know a lot about Stephen, but we do know a few things. So he was gifted with healings, the ability to heal people. It's not him, it's Jesus in him doing that, but he's gifted with healing and miracles. He is full of grace and power and wisdom. Those are wonderful words. We'll look at some of those today. Full of grace and power and wisdom. And we'll see even more next week. He's a man of extreme courage who values the gospel more than his life. And so not to wreck the surprise if you've not read this before, but he's about to become the first Christian martyr ever. And so the first Christian killed simply for being a Christian. It's going to happen next week, not today, but he's on the threshold of that happening. He's about to enter a trial that he will not walk out of. Uh, He will die at the hands of these people who are questioning him. And so so a few quick takeaways uh, from this, and so from some of the first words that we read in this passage, then we'll get into the meat of what I want to talk about today. But a few takeaways, though, from this question on who is Stephen and how he's described here. And so... The first thing is kind of a piggyback on something Spencer said last week, is Stephen is not an apostle. He's not one of the early pastors. He's not an overseer. And so 
What we learn from Stephen here is not being a pastor doesn't preclude spiritual gifts or the opportunity to share the gospel with others or, as we'll see next week, knowing your Bible really, really well. Stephen knows it super well. Or dying for the faith. And so one of the the ideas or kind of lessons here is there are many ways to lead and influence in a church. Some of you might be brand new to Christianity, not a Christian yet maybe, or you're brand new, or just the idea of church is just kind of new and you're thinking about where's my place in it. What we learned from Stephen is there are many ways to lead. Or not all will lead, and that's okay. But if it's not lead, it's influence. Many ways to influence in a church. And so sometimes it has less to do with aspiring to certain roles, though that's fine, but more to do with using your gifts and your talents and your words and your time faithfully to make much of Jesus. And any Christian can do that without hindrance. And Stephen's a great example of this. All right, the second thing is leaders take shots like Jesus did. So this guy, Stephen, literally held a leadership role in the church for we don't know how long, probably a few days, maybe a few weeks before he was killed for it. Didn't have the role that long. You know, so those of you guys pursuing leadership in the church or it could be a company of some kind, could be outside the church as well, so you might be able to empathize or feel this, feel what I'm about to say here, but I'll focus on the church since we're on topic. Those of you pursuing leadership in the church know that the second you become a leader is the second that you will be criticized, blamed for things that are not your fault, questioned, misunderstood, and by people and dark angels attacked. All right, so that's just a little bit. Now, I'm not trying to dissuade you from pursuing leadership. It might sound like I am, like, geez, that's kind of dark, but... um. I'm not trying to do that because some of you are not leaders yet, but you should aspire to it because people have told you they see leadership gifting in you and maybe you feel it and you're like, yeah, I know, but I'm just a little bit scared about it. Aspiring to it is a great thing. Aspiring to the office of pastor and overseer, the Bible actually says explicitly, is a noble thing. But not just that role. It could be other roles in the church as well. That's a good thing. I love leadership. It's one of my favorite things I do. I love to think about it and do it and read about it and train other other people up to do it as well in the church. But with that said, uh, just know what you're getting into. Uh, It's not um, always that great. And leaders take shots because Jesus did. So especially inside the church, Jesus is the ultimate leader, and he took shots all the way to his death. Stephen resembles this. We'll see more next week. Uh, But if you're a leader in the church, you will live out the story of Christ by being attacked even by other Christians you'll almost constantly be opposed by at least some people. And that's even like in healthy churches. And this is not like some passive-aggressive thing of me saying, like I'm speaking to some of you who are like currently attacking me. I'm not doing that. Like I'm a very healthy church right now, and uh, speaking for other pastors, we feel very supported by you guys. But I'm just speaking broadly. This has been true for us. It will be again. A lot of you can understand this and empathize, even if your leader's outside the church. If you lead anybody or make any kinds of decisions ever, you will be criticized, hated, misunderstood, questioned, blamed, and um, not followed many times behind your back, and you'll hear about it through other people as opposed to uh, directly from them. So, so yay, leadership. Sign up. If you want to talk about about leadership, talk to Spencer myself. We'd love to actually talk to you more. It's a really great thing, uh, but it's also uh, terrible. All right, the third thing is this phrase, uh, full of grace. Now, it's easy. This is a this is a phrase to be clear that this is descriptive of Stephen. He was a man full of grace, it says. Uh, now, it's easy to read over this too quickly and out of context, and maybe you thought this when, it, when, it, when I read it, but it's easy to think of full of grace and think that simply means that Stephen was a kind man. And maybe he was kind. He probably was kind. He's full of the Holy Spirit, and God is the kindest being in the universe. And so he probably was kind. But grace, biblically, as we use the Bible to define this term, grace means way more than kindness, biblically. Grace is undeserved merit or unfair kindness from God to us. We don't deserve the kindness, but he shows it to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the opposite of grace in the Bible and right in Acts is what? What's the opposite of grace? The law, right? The law is the opposite of grace. In other words, doing or working with our hands is the opposite of God doing and working with his hands. All right, so when, when you look at this idea, actually John 1 talks about this. 
The law came through Moses. This is, a, this is a stark contrast. This is not a plus sign where there's a semicolon. This is a stark contrast between the two. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so when it says that, that Stephen is full of grace, what it's really saying is he's full of not law. He's full of not law. And so just by Stephen's very nature, being full of grace, he is an offense to these law-abiding religious Jews. And so one of the lessons here, this, is, this has come up a lot in Acts and way back in our Galatians series a year ago if you were here for this, but good people who love the rules will almost all the time take offense at gospel people. Good people will almost always take offense at gospel people because of how much gospel people are not about the rules, but we're about Jesus. And so we're actually against the law in a way, not that we're pro-sin, so as we're not sinning, well, we sin all the time, but not that we're promoting or condoning sin, we're actually against the law at the same time. And that's just not a bucket that, um, or kind of a category that law-abiding religious do-gooders have, uh, again, a category four. And so... So this sets up the passage really well. The fact that Stephen is full of grace and full of not law, full of not commandments, full of not Moses, full of not working with your hands, but instead full of the grace of God alone, not the commandments, but full of the grace of God alone, the blood of Jesus alone, like we just sang, in Jesus' blood alone I trust, not in anything I have to bring. The fact that he's full of that alone, his very nature, the nature of Christ being in him, before he even speaks, is an offense to these people who are digging their fingernails into the law of God because they love it so much. All right, so that whole idea there sets up the passage and sets up the conflict that we'll start to see today spill over into next week, all right? But here's the big question I want to talk about, or I want to ask, and as I ask it, just think, what, what do you think about this? Were the accusations against Stephen fair? Were the accusations against him fair? What do you think? The accusations, to be clear, being blasphemous words against Moses and God, and he keeps speaking against the temple and the Old Testament law. He can't stop doing that. And that Jesus changed the customs that Moses handed down. So were they fair? The answer is a very clear no and yes. So let's talk about the no first. Uh, it's an e that's the easier one. Verse 13 says, they set up false witnesses who said these things. All right, which obviously indicates that these, these things that, that they're saying, that they're blaming Stephen for, were not entirely true. So they are at least exaggerated, as in the phrase, never stops. Like whenever I saw that, he never stopped saying these things. Like immediately I thought of like Aletha and I call each other out on that in the home. Like we say, never really, or always, you always do that. Like we always, we throw in a yellow flag when that happens. But um, like he never stopped, really never stopped saying these things really, but just kind of just, you know, oozes exaggeration. But anyway, and that they were probably having this personal grudge against Stephen as well, which you kind of see how the patches starts, this kind of personal grudge where they can't withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. He's probably going to these Greek-speaking synagogues as uh, a Hellenized uh, Jew, Stephen, and uh, preaching and speaking, and, but no one could really answer his questions or have something to say against him, and so they just hated him for it, and so this personal grudge here as well. All right? So some of these accusations are clearly... Uh, clearly false. But I say not entirely true or not entirely false because not all these accusations are created equal. Is Stephen a Christian blaspheming God? Blasphemy means impious mocking or rejecting. Is Stephen blaspheming God? No, he's not. But note how the accusations are he's blaspheming Moses and God. He's blaspheming Moses first and then God. It's like, oh, and then, then God as well. But he's really blaspheming Moses. That's the, biggest, that's the bigger thing they seem to be all fired up about. Isn't that weird? So Moses, to be clear, the, the Old Testament prophet who led Israel through the desert after they exodus or escaped out of Egypt after spending 400 years in slavery there, and who in a way mediated the Old Testament to the people of Israel. He was kind of the go-between. He was the one that God gave the law to, the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial laws, the civil laws. 
and basically said, Leviticus 18.5, do this and you will live. It was a conditional covenant. God was promising blessing. He promised there was grace in it too, to a degree, but he was saying it was conditionalized. Moses was kind of the go-between. He was the mediator. He was the one that carried down the Ten Commandments from Sinai, the book of the law, the Decalogue, and gave them to, to the people. So they're saying Stephen is blaspheming uh, that guy. And so what they probably mean by this, because it's kind of a weird thing, how do you even blasphemy Moses? But what they probably mean is Stephen, the accusation anyway, is Stephen is speaking against the law of God, speaking against the Ten Commandments and the sacrificial laws in the temple, which many of the laws went, kind of were given over to temple construction and tabernacle or tent construction and so forth, where they met, people met with God and sacrifices happened. Stephen's speaking against them because Moses and law are synonymous in the Bible. And again, the law included instructions about the tabernacle or, and then later the temple. So do you see how highly they regarded the law? To say that they blasphemed Moses and put Moses before God even, like how highly they thought of him or these things, Moses and then the law he was associated with. So but this then is where you start to get the sense that maybe the accusers don't see things clearly theologically. So the accusations themselves are wrought with problems. Not just because they're lies or exaggerations, but because they're based off of faulty theology themselves. So is Stephen blaspheming Moses? Not blaspheming Moses, but they probably did hear something close to it that they exaggerated into a lie. And so that's where we're going to switch gears now and talk about the, uh, the yes behind the accusation. So were they fair accusations? In one sense, No. But in other sense, they definitely were. They were fair, at least in part. Meaning, he probably was saying things that downplayed the temple. He probably was saying things that downplayed the law, downplayed Moses, for the sake of the new and greater and better thing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The thing that was passing up and replacing those older shadows or placeholders. Those things that didn't work, that served to accuse and expose rather than save. And so when Christians are preaching, they're not just talking about Jesus saving. And that, that verse that Spence read did a great job. When the Bible talks about grace, it doesn't just talk about grace. It talks about grace over and against the law, the things that it was contrasting with, so that it might shine all the brighter against the, back, the, the dark backdrop of things that didn't work and that brought condemnation rather than life. All right, so let me give a brief rationale for this. I'm just going to do a quick little just buggy ride basically through the Old Testament here, um, and how we know, and actually more than the Old Testament, we'll start with Acts, but how we know this is the case. How do we know that part of these accusations actually were true? But I'll do it from the perspective of how the Bible speaks to it, and we'll start narrow, so starting with right in Acts, how do we know this is true? Then we'll widen out to the life of Jesus Christ, then we'll widen out farther to the Old Testament, other parts of the Bible to argue for this. And, and just understand, if you're brand new to this, or even if you're not, this is just a sampling for time's sake. We could spend literally all day, probably all week, looking at this idea. This gives you an idea, starting small, starting narrow, right in context, widening to what Jesus said and did, then widening farther to the Old Testament as it predicted these, these times of change were afoot or coming, how we know that partly what they're accusing Stephen of actually was justified. He actually probably was saying these things. All right, so we'll, we'll start with the first thing here in Acts. This is a big one. We'll see this next week, but the first piece is Stephen did not correct them. So when Stephen starts to speak, he does not correct the, these, assuming they were all false, as some people argue. Stephen doesn't correct them. Now, this doesn't mean there weren't false accusations happening. There were. We already talked about that. But it's significant that Stephen doesn't immediately defend himself and clarify that, Oh, actually, guys, I am all for the temple and the law and Moses. Can I clarify that for you? That's not the first thing he says. If you want to read ahead, please do that. But it's actually pretty cool what he starts with. But he does not, the fact that he does not say that is hugely important. In fact, in his speech next week, we'll see, he does explicitly downplay the temple by quoting God in the Old Testament when he said, Heaven is my throne, not this temple made by human hands. How can I fit in there? And so he's actually justifying the accusations. He's validating the accusations with his speech. 
He is saying, yes, you were right. Yes, I did say some of those things because God said some of those things. The Old Testament says some of those things. So he's saying, yes, I did say them, but you should have seen them as well, brothers, since God himself forecasted these changes. All right, so that's the first piece. The second piece here, this has been a major Lucan theme or theme of Luke the author in Acts, that salvation has come apart from law and apart from the temple. So what this means is not only that salvation is through Jesus' death and resurrection, we've heard and seen this explicitly and implicitly all over Acts so far. We're saved by Jesus when he died for us on that cross and he rose again. But also that this salvation came, to quote Romans 3, apart from law. Two people who didn't deserve it, who weren't teachers of the law. And it came geographically and symbolically outside of the temple. The locus of Old Testament covenant life, where people were sort of, in part, drawing near to God. And so the temple then so far in Acts is being shunned when all of this Jesus-focused preaching and miraculous healing is taking place outside of it. Jesus died outside the temple. He rose again outside the temple. He ascended outside the temple. He sent the Spirit to the disciples outside the temple. Healings, miraculously, are taking place outside the temple. And now the church is increasingly meeting in homes outside the temple and outright replacing the temple. That's a huge piece of this as well. Acts 15, we'll come to this in a few weeks. Actually, it gets later this summer. But later in Acts, we'll see the first ever Jewish Christian council meet. And they basically decide there are no remaining Old Testament laws over Christians. They talk about the importance of sexual purity, the importance of loving each other across minor doctrinal divides. But they put no other requirements over Christians other than to just believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and to love other Christians. That's the two things. And the whole question is about what remaining Old Testament laws are over Christians. Jewish Christians are saying to that that question, none. There's no remaining laws. None. Except to believe in Jesus and to love, uh, which is just what Jesus said. And we'll come to that here in, in a second. It's not quite as simple as I just made it, but it would take me 12 minutes, probably. It's a specific number, but uh, like a good 12 minutes to uh, talk about it. So um, we'll unpack it, or someone will this summer who preaches it. But. All right, widening out. How do the life and teachings of Christ help us see this? A few quick six things. I'm not going to expound too much on these. I'll just read through them. But Jesus called himself new wine, which meant in context that he was in fact doing something new apart from the law and apart from the traditions of men. We see he said things like, Moses said this, but I am saying this, which literally means he's changing the customs of Moses. Literally, right? Which again is, is justifying the accusations in Acts 6. Jesus himself says, I'm changing what Moses taught. In John 5, it says that he broke the Sabbath because he was fulfilling it. He was like replacing it. He is the new rest for people. Not a law anymore. He gives rest for souls. And so there's no more Sabbath law. It's just Jesus and what he does for us on the cross. That is true rest. Four, he gave new commandments like love each other as I first loved you. Believe in me. Believe in the Father and believe in me and what I'm going to do for you, and then love each other as a reflection of the love that you've been shown. He curses the mountain on which the temple stood. The week before, uh, during the week, I forget which day it was, but um, days before he dies on the cross, he's in Jerusalem. He looks at the mountain on which the temple stood, and he curses the mountain, and he says, "If, if you have enough faith, Or faith actually as big as a mustard seed, you can pick it up and you can throw it into the heart of the sea. And the sea is a metaphor for judgment and curse in the Bible. And so he's actually cursing the temple of God in the Old Testament and the system that was wrapped up around it. He's cursing the old system. It's not working. It was never meant to. It was meant to slowly image, kind of partially image the future where Jesus would replace it and be the better thing. But it also was meant to fail so that Israel and the world watching would want something better. And so Jesus curses the temple, actually. Again, if this is what Stephen is kind of picking up on, then yes, again, the accusations are justified. 
He is talking against Moses. He is talking against the temple. Jesus did. And then six, he established a new covenant, different than the old. A new covenant or testament with his body and blood. And elsewhere calls his body a temple, the new temple of God's presence. So in that way, he speaks against the temple. By saying there's something new, Hebrews 8.13, I'll just mention this verse, encourage you to look it up, but when something new is talked about, it says, the old immediately becomes obsolete. When something new is talked about, the old immediately becomes obsolete. Hebrews 8.13 and in context. He's talking about the covenants there, but this could be said about the temple as well. When something new is talked about, the old immediately starts to become obsolete. All right? So a few things, just a few of the many things Christ said that supports this idea, but six really important ones. All right? Then widening out to the rest of the Bible to help us see this, I actually want to stay in the Old Testament because it's important to see that this change was predicted in the Old Testament, not just the New, but in the Old Testament, and that these are texts that these Jewish spiritual leaders and priests who are questioning Stephen should have known. These are the teachers of Israel, and they've missed these things. All right? But Stephen knows, and many others as well, too. All right? So we'll start kind of chronologically back in Genesis. Galatians hits on this. That's why I mentioned that reference here. But the idea that Abraham had two sons, this is a thematic idea. Abraham had two sons who represent two covenants. And so the idea here, just to summarize this quickly, as the Bible says, Jesus came genealogically from the line, the genealogical line of promise or of God doing everything and people doing nothing. So he came from the line of Isaac, not Ishmael, grace, not law. If you know the story, but grace, not law. And so, again, like Abraham had two sons, and it wasn't the son who he worked hard to produce that Jesus came through, but it was the son he did nothing to work for, but who miraculously was given and conceived in his barren wife's womb, that Isaac, that Jesus came through. That's huge. And in the New Testament, they say, they pick up on that and say there's two testaments here. There's a works-centered testament, an effort-centered testament, and a grace-centered one, and Jesus decidedly did not come through the first one, but the latter one. And this theme plays out all throughout the Old Testament. These juxtaposed twins or brothers or kings or people, one of which represents law and one represents grace, and it's always the grace one that Jesus comes through genealogically or the prophets associate him with as they forecast him centuries into the future. All right, so that's the thematic thing we could spend all day on. But Psalm 40, moving ahead in the Old Testament in the Psalms, Psalm 46 to 8 says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it's written of me in the scroll of the book. Hebrews 10 in the New Testament calls these the words of Christ. David wrote this, but Jesus is the son of David and the ultimate author uh, spiritually, of Psalm 40 is Jesus himself before he was even born. And so basically what this is saying is there's two testaments here as well. There's a, a law one in association with sacrifices and laws and offerings and things like that. And then there is a second one that is associated with just a person saying, behold, I will do your will. That's the contrast. So laws and offerings contrasted with just someone saying, behold, I will do your will. And what that's referring to is when Jesus said, I will go to the cross obediently. I will die on the cross obediently. I will be obedient and subservient to your will, Father, and I will die for the sins of the world. But that's the contrast. Laws, everything in the Old Testament, it looked ahead to the latter thing, but the contrast is conditionality, moral effort, contrasting with Jesus just saying, I will do your will. This is all from Hebrews 10 in context, but just a bit of a summary there. Psalm 40, though, picks up on this big time. Jeremiah 31 says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them up out of Egypt. In other words, he's saying, the New Testament will not be like the one that I gave through Moses. So again, speaking, you know, not, not blaspheming Moses, but it's speaking, it's downplaying, it's speaking against in some regard. This is the one that Moses gave, the one that... that Jeremiah the prophet who ministered in the 700s BC is already speaking of a new thing coming and speaking against Moses in the sense that it will not be like the covenant he mediated. It will be a different one and a better one and a new one. 
based on Christ. And then lastly, Amos 5.21, just going quick here, but Amos 5.21, God says to Israel, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. So what God is saying here is I'm against your law-keeping. I'm against the covenant. I'm against the whole system. And we know this was not just a heart issue. It's not just about motive. It was probably part of it, for sure, that comes up elsewhere in the prophets. For sure, that's a piece. We know it wasn't just a heart issue because if it was, then Jesus would come into the world to say and ultimately enact, I'm here to change your hearts to do all of the Old Testament law. And he never says that. We know this is a, this is a huge part of what's going on here because we don't struggle with, with sacrificing goats or lambs or pigeons or anything like that here, right? We don't struggle with Sabbath keeping, or we shouldn't. We know that things were changing. So we know here that when God is saying, I hate, I despise your feasts, he's not just talking about their impure motives to do the law, he's actually despising the whole system. And instead, what he's going to do is replace it entirely through his son's body and blood, period. Period. Not a plus sign from the former way, but a complete uh, upheaval of, of the old system that was bent on our works, not God's. Stephen again is saying, and we'll see this next week, my brothers, you should have known better. You should have known. All of these things were in the Old Testament you cherish, you've memorized, you teach. How did you miss it? Did you impose your own theological interpretive grid over the Bible? Supposing without reading it and letting it inform your ideas, you had your own ideas that you read into the text? How did you miss it? This is what he's going to say next week. But the reason why we're in the Old Testament here and not just the New, we could spend all day in the New in terms of how it talks about the contrast between law and grace. But the reason why we're in the Old Testament is to show that even in the Old Testament, God is forecasting the demise of the old system and the replacing of it with the new system, which is entirely wrapped around Jesus' blood and his raised body. And him saying, Behold, Father, I've come to do your will. That's the New Testament. Not us saying, behold, God, I've come to do your will. Not us saying, behold, I've come to be obedient to you. Not us saying it's about me. But Jesus in our place saying, I've come to do the will of God, which was to die. All right? So, again, we could spend so much more time, but the point to all of this, going back to Acts 6, the accusations against Stephen are, in part, true. We have to see this. This is the whole point. It actually doesn't make any sense. His speech next week will make no sense if we don't see this because he's actually quoting things and citing things and, and preaching things that are flying in the face of their law-centered beliefs. The accusations against Stephen are in part true. And in that, we are reminded yet again of this glorious truth that Jesus did come to save us by grace, not by works. That's the whole point of everything we looked at today. Everything. The idea, and I'm going to quote Leviticus 18.5 again, the idea, the Old Testament idea, do this and you will live, has been changed and replaced by believe in Jesus, call on his name, and you will live. Romans 10 uh, has a huge thing on this. Uh, I think it's verses 5 through something. Uh, but Romans 10 talks about this where Paul uses that, Leviticus 18.5, and says the old system was do this and you will live, but the new system is believe on him, call on him, say, God, save me. Show me mercy. I bring nothing to the table, and you will live. Those are marked differences. Oil and water, they can't coexist as much as we try to make them coexist. So again, the Jews were hearing Stephen write, Moses has grown obsolete the covenant of human works had grown obsolete. Jesus came not to help us keep the old laws, but to replace them with his body. So really this, this council here is, and we're seeing this, we've seen it before. What I like about Stephen is you especially see it. It's a clash between ideologies. And it's a clash between Old Testament theologies. On one side, we have Stephen, a Jewish man, who is seeing Jesus replace the old way. And he's speaking and living and he's accordingly and he's full of grace in light of it. On the other side, we have these Jews who are digging their fingernails into the tablets of the law that they love so dearly 
because they think it makes them look good. And so one thing I think this does for us is, as Christians as well, not just those of you who are not yet Christians, I mean for Christians, is which side are you on? There's two distinct sides here. There's not a blended pool in the middle. There's no third way. Which side of, like, the, the courtroom are you on? Stephen's side or these good religious people's side who are, who are about the rules and about the law and about commandment keeping? Which side are we on? And it's very, very easy to think we're on the right side and not be. But Christi- at least understand this, especially if you're new to the faith, Christianity is not about digging our fingernails into the Ten Commandments. But it's about Jesus digging his fingernails into the cross as they were being nailed to that tree for you and me. It's about him doing the will of God and saying, believe in me, call upon me, and you will be saved. Whatever you've done for the worst of people, for the furthest away, I'm going to experience a visceral, bloody, shameful, most horrific, most abomination of desolations type death, most cursed death. I'm going to experience hell on the cross for people who are the worst of people. And if they call upon me, they will be saved. People like us. But for people who are good or think they're good, this will be problematic. And some will repent, some will change. Some, like Stephen, will understand the system. The whole point of it was to change from the former to the latter, and they will make that shift and change, but but others won't. And for the sake of their goodness, they will reject Jesus. Not their badness but for the sake of their goodness, they will reject him. It's actually really interesting here. The last word we get in this section is that um, Stephen is described as having the face of an angel. Isn't that a really cool way to end? It's like they looked on him. They're about to ask him questions. The high priest is there. and All these accusations come out, and they look on Stephen, like kind of waiting for him to talk, like, all right, well, what do you think? And he's just this guy standing there with a glowing face, presumably angelic face. But the last word in this passage is not just Stephen's implied words, but his face actually undergirds this whole idea. So I want to spend a few minutes on this before we wrap up. This idea that Stephen had an angelic face. All right? So verse 13 says, and gazing, now mark this word in your mind. I highlighted it for, for simplicity's sake here. Gazed, they gazed at him. They were gazing at him. All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So they are literally gazing at a face, all right? Have that in mind. And and when you look at it that way, actually, and before we get to some of the bigger points here, it was like the face of an angel, which is probably something otherworldly and bright and full of grace and power, and we could go on and on. We kind of speculate here. But really, it's something like Jesus's. I want to connect those dots before we move on here because... His face, Jesus is also likened to the sun in the Bible as our angels' faces. And so um, angels' faces and Jesus' face is likened. They're both called like the sun in Revelation as just one, one example of this. And so um, to extrapolate from that then, this is really important, it's really the face of Jesus here who is inside Stephen by the Holy Spirit. Which means, which is not that hard to understand, we understand that Jesus lives inside of his people, right? Is it really the face of an angel, or is it the face of uh, the king of angels, right? Or the one who's actually inside of Stephen, rather than someone who's not inside of him. And so, it's uh, ultimately the face of Christ that is in play. Which means then, this Jewish council is gazing, here's that word again, gazing at the face of Jesus by way of Stephen. And all of that made me think of two things that I think that Luke is calling us back to here. Uh, and I'll just throw them up on the screen. But th- these two things that also undergird this idea of law, grace, contrast by way of the theme of glorious faces or glowing faces or just faces in the Bible. And those two things really short here are, one, the fact that the Israelites in the Old Testament could not gaze... This is quoting from 2 Corinthians 3, so this is where we make these connections. Couldn't gaze at Moses' face. And 2 Corinthians 3, 7 talks about it, but this is an Old Testament idea. And also quote from 2 Corinthians 3, which represented the ministry of death, the Old Testament law, and it was carved in letters on stone. 
And so basically what this is saying is when he came down from the mountain and the Israelites couldn't even look at Moses' face, he had to wear a veil, all of that represented, according to the New Testament, it represented the unapproachability of the old law-centered system. Like, we can't get to God through the law. We can't even look at the face of the mediator, how much less God himself. And that's the second thing here. The uh, second piece is the fact that Moses himself couldn't gaze at the face of God in Exodus 33 or he would die. And so we have these Old Testament images of separation and I can't see the face of God. I can't see the face of God's prophet or mediator or I'll go blind or I'll die. Or God, this is where God himself, remember the story where Moses says, I want to see your face and God says, you can see my back. What a weird thing, you know. You can't see my face or you'll die, but I'll let you see my back, like if that's any better. But anyway, uh, he does. And so he sees his back as he passes by Moses, covers his eyes, lets him see his back. Anyway, that's the whole story. But the point is, the Old Testament says the law separates you and shows the law separates us from God. All over the place. This is one of them by way of the theme of faces. So, so now go back with those two things in mind to Acts 6. And it says here, gazing at him, gazing at Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of, of an angel. And so what this is saying to us Biblically, theologically, is that these councilmen, these enemies of God and of God's people, are able to gaze at the face of Stephen, which resembled an angel, which resembled Jesus, without dying or being blinded by the light. So really what they're, what they're experiencing here is they're sharing partially in the blessing of the New Testament, even while they actively reject it. And, and here's the kind of the New Testament counterpiece to the idea of not being able to see faces in the law-centered Old Testament. And that's this. For God who said, let there be light, let it shine out of darkness, has again shown in our Christian hearts, those of us who are becoming Christians, he's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All in the same context of saying they couldn't see Moses' face, now we can see in the New Testament the ministry of life the covenant that gives life and not condemnation. This is the same part where Paul says the law kills, but the Spirit gives life in 2 Corinthians 3.6. This is the life side. And this, now we can actually see God's face because not of, because of the law, but because of what God has done through his Son. Not because of what we bring, but because of what God brings by grace. And so I think Luke is, is adding this verse here because he knows all this stuff. He knows all this stuff. And he's saying, I'm not just saying this, I'm not just showing it, I, I want to also bring in the idea of face approachability thematically here to remind you of Exodus 33, to remind you of Moses and God and unapproachability and how the law kills, but then also show how we have like the face of Jesus here now shining on enemies and they're living, even people who are actively rejecting. All right, so... So here, here's the point then. We'll wrap up with this. Here's the point. The point here is not, maybe you too, Christian, can have a face like an angel. If you evangel, as you evangelize people, maybe God is letting your face be like an angel as well. If you've ever heard that taught, taught, this passage taught that way, just outright reject it. That's just not true. And it's condemning. And how do we even know if you have a face like an angel anyway? You know? Maybe when you respond graciously to our accusers and graciously to our, our opposers and enemies, that in a way we kind of have an angelic face. And that, that um, like the Proverbs say, gentleness turns away wrath, you know. So I think that maybe in some ways there can be some, some truth there. But that is not the point. This is less about you, much less about you than you think, and much more about your Savior. This is much more about Christ, much more about really who is inside Stephen and is greater than him because he's resembling Jesus here. But what's greater than all of that is that Jesus here is having this posture towards his enemies that resembles Stephen's towards the councils. So, so the gospel according to Acts 6 is this. Stephen's posture towards the Jews is a picture of Jesus' posture because of what he did on the cross for us, a picture of his posture towards you and me, us. We are enemies, we are sinners, we are arrogant God-haters. 
And we are clinging to the law as well in a way as we cling to our own achievements and our faux sense of goodness and morality. And yet because of what Jesus did for us through his death and resurrection, because he died for you, for you, not a vague notion of a group of human beings that he kind of vaguely knew from eternity past, but actually for you if you believe the gospel. And if you don't yet, he loves you. and He died for you. Like, because of what he did for us through his death and resurrection, we can not only be acquitted, but we can see God's face again. And we sang about that earlier, how we pray that God would hasten the day when he would come and we would see the face of God. That's what we get to see. Does that excite you? Do you want that? See, grace makes us want to see God's face. The law doesn't. If you're a law-centered, work-centered person, you have work to do, and you're probably fearing his return. But if you believe that God saves you in spite of all the good and all the bad that you've ever done, you want to see that God who made you, who loved you, who sent his son to die in your place. This is what actually makes us sing that song with like the, the truest sense of like, power and, and veracity and, and um, energy. Because of what Jesus did, it's not just about acquittal, it's about seeing God's face. That's what Stephen is telling us. And Stephen's face, like Jesus's, it shines back against the law in spite of it, not because of it. Law and love don't mix. The law exposes, love overlooks. I think about my marriage a lot, how um, law, the law, by definition, exposes problems right? It has to. The law, by definition, exposes our sin, exposes what we've done wrong. Love, on the other hand, overlooks problems. It overlooks sins. It overlooks foibles. Like Aletha and I say, my wife and I say to each other all the time, we think that God graciously blinded us from our messes. Otherwise, would we really have wanted to marry each other, you know? But, but we do. We did. We love each other, and our love looked over our sins. Do you see the difference? We can't be... The second I add law back into my marriage is the second it becomes not loving. You cannot mix the two. And yet Christians try to all the time. We all do. I do. By nature, we come back to this. But the, the, the Bible does not allow for a mix. It is not a plus. It's not a Jesus plus, not a law plus. It's a Jesus replacing idea because love replaces law in the Bible. The law can point to love. It can lead us there. But it gives way to the better thing. Love is always unconditional. Love always looks over the foibles and the sins, just like love put Jesus on that cross to not just look over, but to die and bleed for ours. And in that way, God's wrath passes over us. It diverts, and we have love instead. So let me read John 3.16 with a slight change here for emphasis. For God so loved his enemies... For God so loved his enemies that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting resurrected life. Do you believe this? And do you believe you are more like the council in this story than you are Stephen? Stephen's a Christ figure and not an us figure. Stephen's a Christ figure. We are like the enemies of God who God, because of Jesus, has shown brightly in love against. He says, because of my son's blood, you can see my face. Because of my son's blood, no separation. Because of my son's blood, you get kindness even as you're attacking me, even as you're disbelieving, even as you're sinning. Do you see the, 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 the undeserved, unfair kindness that we get because Jesus died in our place and how different that is than the tit-for-tat conditionality of the law? The tit-for-tat conditionality of the commandments. It's apples and oranges. Praise God it's apples and oranges. For God so loved his enemies, not the people who are doing good, for God so loved his enemies that he gave his son to die for them. Have you ever done that for your enemies? You haven't. Have you, has your enemies ever done that for you? They haven't. Because this is a radical kind of love. It's a, God, it's, only, it's a type of love that we can at best whisper. It's fine to aspire to it, Christian. Christ's teachings indicate this, but we can't do this even close to perfectly. The point is, God died for his enemies, us. 
God shown his face against his enemies in kindness, us. And that type of love is not fair, nor is it satisfiable somehow by commandment keeping. Either we, ha- we receive that radical love, or we reject it, or we seek to replace it with morality. Those are the three options. When you hear about the gospel, hear about what Jesus did, you can receive it, you can reject it, or you can seek to replace it with good deeds, replace it with morality. So two of those are, are, are a, um, a wrong response, but, but they, don't, they don't end with someone becoming a Christian. It's only the, the reception of the gift, the reception of grace that makes someone a sinner, an enemy, a brother, a, a brother or a son or a daughter, or a, a brother of Christ. But in the end, Jesus is the only one full of grace. It's not Stephen. Stephen said he's full of grace here, but he's not. It's Jesus in him, because you and I aren't full of grace. We're too sinful and dead for that. It's Christ inside Stephen who's full of grace. The only one who's full of not law, who's full of grace, is Jesus Christ, and he offers it to you. If you believe in him, you'll be raised from the dead. If you believe in him, you'll be exonerated. If you believe in him, you will have access to seeing his face again one day. And kind of now spiritually in a way. No more separation. Just simply the Holy Spirit. No more expectation of wrath or judgment. No more conditionality. Love instead of commandment. Love instead of law. This is the gospel that grants joy but also greatly offends. Uh, offends the good people. Uh, in the world, all of us to a degree because we think we're a lot better than we are. But it is something we have to lay down and say it's, it's not, the gospel's not a reward for you. It's not a flattering thing. It's something that comes in spite of all the good you've done in life and all the bad. It's simply like saying, I love you and this is how much. So we pray for us, invite the band up here, we'll respond with a couple of songs. So, God, thank you uh, so much for your grace in and through this passage uh, and the stark contrast that you make kind of by way of this messy conflict and trial. You've done that so much in Acts so far and you will not, you're not done. There's a lot more trials, a lot more of these kind of accusations that come up later in the book actually. Um, The early Christians preached in a way that was uncomfortable uh, to the moralist. And so do we, 2,000 years later. uh, And we're all that. This is an uncomfortable thing. But Christianity is decidedly not about digging our fingernails into the Ten Commandments but about Jesus digging his fingernails into the cross of Christ for us on our behalf in love. So, Father, uh, we pray that you'd help us to believe it and to preach it and to not be surprised when good people hate us for that. Not just bad people like us, again, but we're all in the same camp, but anyway. Uh, But but actually good people um, because the gospel brings offense to those who think highly of, of themselves. So, Thank you so much for your love. Help us to respond uh, with gladness, happiness, joy, thankfulness for the bloody body of Christ that establishes the New Testament through which we are saved. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and respond.